Matthew chapter 5 says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, our Declaration of Independence says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Built into our country is this idea that we have this right to pursue happiness. Doesn't mean that we'll find happiness, but that we have this right to pursue it and seek it with all of our hearts. And the reality is we all seek happiness. It's not a bad thing to seek happiness. We all seek happiness. The famous mathematician Blaise Pascal once said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man even of those who hang themselves. We all seek happiness. The problem is that many of us don't find happiness. Uh, the most popular course in Yale University's history uh, was offered in the fall of 2017. It was Psych 157, Psychology and the Good Life. And it talked about the idea of happiness and finding happiness. Nearly one quarter of Yale's undergraduates enrolled for this class. Uh, the professor, Lori Santos, who teaches this course, says that she tries to teach students how to lead happier, more satisfying lives. It's no wonder that the course caught on. Another previous survey found that uh, more than half of undergraduates sought mental health care from the university while they were enrolled uh, in the university. One of Santos' principal lessons is that, th is that the things that Yale graduates most associate with achieving happiness, a high grade, a prestigious internship, a good-paying job, do not increase happiness at all. She says scientists didn't realize this in the same way 10 or so years ago. Our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery and get, getting a good grade, are totally wrong. Now, the reason, of course, this course was so popular was because everyone wants to be happy, and yet many of us have trouble finding happiness. And uh, I think we're currently living in a recession, not just a financial recession, but a happiness recession. Uh, the General Social Society, a well-respected poll has been tracking Americans' attitudes since 1972, uh, found that in three years, between 2018 and 2021, Americans' happiness just cratered. According to one journalist, the graph looks like the heart rate has plunged, and they're paging everyone on the floor to revive the patient. For the first time since the survey was offered 50 years ago, more people say they're not too happy than say that they're very happy. In 2018, 31% of people said they were very happy. In 2021, it was 19%. In 2018, 13% of people said they were not too happy. 
In 2021, it was 24%. We all seek happiness, and yet many of us struggle to find happiness. And yet Jesus gives us some answers in this passage. If only we would listen to the words of Christ. In this passage called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the keys to lasting happiness. And he talks about this idea of being blessed. Blessed is are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Another word, a way for, to translate blessed is happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. But when Jesus is talking about happiness, he's not just talking about a psychological feeling. He's not just talking about subjective feeling of, of feeling happy. But he's talking about living in a happy state. And, and really, translating it into English, we don't really have a, a, a great word to kind of translate it over. Happy or blessed is kind of the closest we can come to. Uh, but think about it this way. Let's say that you have a, a big event in your life. You get married. You have a child. You graduate from school. You get a new job. What do people tell you? They tell you, congratulations. In other words, they're saying, you're in a good place. I'm happy for you. You're in the place you should be. And that kind of gets close to what Jesus is saying in here. It's saying here, congratulations to the poor in spirit. Congratulations to those who mourn. You're in a happy state. You're in a good place. And so with that kind of caveat in mind that he's not just talking about just a subjective feeling of happiness, but a happy state, let's look at Jesus' eight keys to happiness very briefly. The first thing he says is, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. Uh, so let's say your car breaks down. You can't fix it. You need a new car. Now, a person who's wealthy might go to the dealership and write a check for $45,000 and buy, pick out the exact car that they want and drive away with that car. But a poor person maybe looks at their bank account, and maybe they only got $500 in their bank account, certainly not enough for a new car. And so what do they do? They start praying. They start calling out to God, recognizing that they need help, recognizing they need someone to intervene. They need a loan. They need someone to help them with a down payment. They need something to change in their life. And there's a reason that Jesus says it's so hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven is because wealth tends to, to make us trust in, those, in, in possessions. When we have a lot of things, we trust in those things. If you have tons of money in the bank, you don't need to call out on God to provide for you. And so that's why Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, and sometimes people think that money equals happiness, and that's that's not the case. Just as Santos says, sometimes people who win the lottery end up very depressed, and people who are diagnosed with, with horrible illnesses sometimes end up happy. And so it's not, there's not necessarily a correlation between our life circumstances and our happiness. And so Jesus, in, in this passage, he's talking about the poor in spirit, and he's not specifically talking about financial poverty or, or financial wealth, he's talking about the state of our hearts. And so you could have a person who's poor in spirit who actually has a lot of possessions, who recognizes the needs that they have in their heart and trust in God, even if they have a lot of possessions. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller offers the following definition of what Jesus meant by poor in spirit. He says, it means seeing that you're deeply in debt before God and you have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself. God's free generosity to you at infinite cost to him was the only thing that saved you. 
But many people today resist Jesus' teaching about our spiritual poverty. He says, on the contrary, you believe that God owes you some things. He ought to answer your prayers and to bless you for the many good things you've done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term, by inference we can say that you are middle class in spirit. You feel that you've earned your certain standing with God through your hard work. You also may believe that the success uh, and the resources you have are primarily due to your own industry and energy. And so the poor in spirit recognize their need before God. They recognize that they're broken. They recognize their need for grace. They recognize that they need God. And notice what the reward for the poor in spirit is. That they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. Don't miss the importance of what Jesus is saying here. Those who have nothing will inherit a kingdom. Those who are broken, those who recognize their need for God, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says the man who is, or woman who is poor in spirit is in a happy state because they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. The second thing he says is happy are those who mourn. Now on the surface it seems like an oxymoron. Uh, how can you be happy or blessed and at the same time be mourning? Uh, here again we're not, we must remember that Jesus isn't talking primarily about emotion or feeling happy in the moment but a state of being. Second, he's probably not talking about a specific period of uh, bereavement, maybe we, where we lose somebody or have a time of personal loss, but he's talking about people who have a hard life. Uh, you've met people like this, or maybe you are someone like this, who it seems like you never catch a break. You know, you just keep facing obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And Jesus says, you're in a good state because you're right in the position where God is going to comfort you. In the ancient world, people thought that if good things happened to you, you were blessed by God. And if bad things happened to you, God had turned his back on you. And so that was the prevailing mindset, even among many in Jesus' day, that if you're struggling physically, financially, emotionally, you must have done something wrong. And yet Jesus turns this on his head and says, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn because you're going to be comforted. The things that the world thinks will make you happy don't necessarily, won't necessarily make you happy. And so Jesus changes the prevailing mindset. Uh, scholar R.T. France puts it this way, For those who, as God's people, find their current situation intolerable and incomprehensible, there are better times ahead. And so that's something we can rely on as believers. If we're someone who mourns, if we've experienced difficult things in our life. It doesn't mean that God has turned its back, his back on us. We can trust that he has a plan. We can trust that he has a purpose. And we can trust that better days are ahead. So he says, happy are those who mourn. The third, he says, happy are the meek. We don't talk a lot about meekness in our day. Meekness is a word that has kind of gone by the wayside. Many of us don't even know what meekness really means. But in Jesus' mind, there's great value in it. And so first of all, what is meekness? Meekness is choosing not to use your power, resources, and privileges for your own advantage. Meekness is choosing not to use your power, resources, and privileges for your own advantage. It's choosing to set aside your rights. We talk a lot about rights in our country, that I have the right to do this, or I have the right to do that. And meekness says, I'm going to set aside my rights for the sake of others and to please God. And, you know, you think about Jesus who at any moment could have called down 10,000 angels. 
Uh, Jesus, who could have called down fire from heaven and created this great spectacle for people to see so that people would see who he was. At any moment, he could have used his power and resources to his own advantage, but every step of the way, he chose meekness and chose to honor his heavenly Father and waited for the plan of the Father to be revealed. Those who are meek aren't trying to get ahead. They're simply trying to live their lives. And yet, exactly what happens to them, it says in the text that he inherits the earth. That they're not trying to get ahead. They're not trying to achieve something, but yet they inherit the earth. Uh, think about the, this illustration. Let's say that the Bills make it to the Super Bowl. And the tickets to the Super Bowl are, are about to be released at 9 a.m. on a particular day. People have been lining up for days waiting for tickets at the box office. You have people at the front of the, the, front of the line who got tents and um, air mattresses and heaters and it's just a ruckus kind of intense scene right up there at the front. Nobody would give up their, their spot in line for any, anything. And if anyone tries to come up to the front of the line, they're going to get kicked out pretty fast. So you have this intensity of people who are trying to get those tickets so badly. And imagine it's 8.59 and a little child comes up and gets, gets in line, the back of the line. In front of him are thousands and thousands of people who are trying to get to the front of the line, trying to get those tickets. And then imagine that Terry Pagula comes out of the box office with a security detail, goes to the end of the line, and gives that kid two tickets to the Super Bowl. Now that's a picture of meekness. People who are at the back of the line. People who aren't trying to get ahead, and yet the scriptures say they're going to inherit the earth. They're going to get what they're not seeking. In the end, they will get ahead. People who are meek are just trying to live their lives, loving God, loving people, and yet in the, in the end, they get ahead. Jesus goes on and says, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think about hunger and thirst, they're the, kind of the most basic desires. Uh, when you're hungry or you're thirsty, oftentimes you can't think about anything else. I mean, you go outside in the summertime, you're working outside for a couple hours, you haven't drank anything, and you come in and the only thing you want is an ice-cold glass of water, ice-cold glass of lemonade. I mean, the, these things, hunger and thirst, are things that just can kind of overtake us. They're things that we need that supersede any other kind of desire that we have if those desires are not met. And so the question that this beatitude begs is, what is it that we want most? What is it that supersedes any other desire? What is it that is kind of on the level of food and water for our souls. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It means that what I want most in my heart of hearts is to please my Heavenly Father. That just like I need water, just like I need food physically, in my soul I just need to serve and honor my Heavenly Father. And the good news, Jesus says, is if that's what we desire God is going to hear our prayer. God is going to ch change us. He says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're going to be satisfied. And so God is going to answer their prayer. He goes on and says, happy are the merciful. The thing that's interesting is that when we choose to hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, we think that we're hurting the person that's wronged us. We think that we're hurting them, but we're really hurting ourselves and creating a weight 
that we're putting on our shoulder that's not easily taken off. And forgiveness is incredibly important in the Christian life. Psychologists, not even just Christian psychologists, psychologists in general have praised the benefits of forgiveness. There's even a counseling therapy called forgiveness therapy. Uh, According to Psychology Today, uh, forgiveness is vitally important for the mental health of those who have been victimized. It propels people forward rather than keeping them emotionally engaged in an injustice or trauma. Forgiveness has been shown to elevate mood, enhance optimism, and guard against anger, stress, anxiety, and depression. One psychologist from the University of Michigan, Chris, uh, Christopher Peterson, uh, indicated forgiveness is the, is the trait most strongly linked to happiness. Just uh, reading an article yesterday, Tim Keller wrote, I think it was in the New York Times, and he was talking about this idea that we need more forgiveness today. You know, we have, you know, this kind of political polarization where we're, people are very angry with the other side. And, you know, and his point was we need forgiveness if we're going to clear and, and cleanse our hearts. James 2.13 says this, For judgment is without mercy for the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So apart from just the psychological benefits of forgiveness, I mean, there's a sense in which God is angry with us if we're not forgiving to others. I mean, and think about it, that God sent his own son to die on the cross for us, to forgive us from our sins, and yet we sometimes withhold forgiveness from those around us. That's got to make God incredibly angry. But I think there's even more to it than that. I think that when we live lives of unforgiveness, we kind of shut ourselves off from the forgiveness that our souls need. If we're, if we're not forgiving others, we kind of put ourselves in a place as the judge, as the one who's in the right, the one who has it all together. And, and we look down on this other person who maybe has done us wrong, and we think that you know, we're the judge and the arbiter of what's right. And, and the thing is, in this particular situation, maybe we are in the right. Maybe that person did do something wrong to us. But in other situations, we find ourselves in the other place. It's us who have sinned, us who's in the wrong, and we are in need of forgiveness. And so when we're in a place of unforgiveness and we're not merciful to those around us, then we're in a place where we feel like we don't need forgiveness, that other people need to be forgiven. We're in the right. We have it all together. And so we shut ourselves off from the forgiveness that God offers. But the person who is merciful lives a life of joy, letting go of the past, and having the assurance of God's pardon. So he says, happy are those who are merciful. Happy are those who forgive, for they will find mercy. He goes on and says, happy are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? The pure in, for the pure in heart, it means that there's no games. There's no pretense. There's no performance. There's no hypocrisy. I remember when I was about 15 years old, um, my family went on a cruise. And this wasn't a Disney cruise or Carnival cruise. This was a Gaither Gospel cruise. And so you can imagine the type of people that were on it. It was much, you know, tended to be very, you know, older people. And the activities were catered around older people. So me and my brother got very, very bored. Not a lot to do. And so one day, uh, they were offering this art show. And... uh, they were advertising that if you came, there was a chance to win this 
you know, work of art that was worth like $200 or something like that. So me and my brother thought to ourselves, well, we don't have anything else to do. We might as well go, just go and see if we can win this, this artwork. And so we go there, and the thing we were most excited about was they had these Shirley temples, and they were giving them out for free. So we were really excited about that. And then we sit there through this terribly boring art lecture, just waiting to the end to see if we won. And amazingly, I won. I was so excited about that. And I remember after that, someone was talking to my mom, and they were kind of arranging the details of how we'd get the artwork back home. And I remember someone told, told my mom, it's just so nice to see these young people that are so interested in art. <laughs> and of course, I guess we played the part. But we didn't, weren't interested in the art. We hated the art portion of it. We just wanted to win the prize. That's kind of the place where Jesus' detractors, where the Pharisees and the religious leaders were. They were all there for the show. What's in it for me? They did godly things, but they weren't interested in God. They fasted twice a week, but it wasn't so that they know, would know God. It was so that they would feel spiritual. They gave money in the treasury, but oftentimes they would take in, they clanked their coins so everyone could see, look at how much I'm giving. Look at how generous I am. Look at how much I love God. And oftentimes what they did was they defrauded the poor. They didn't truly worship God. It was all about the performance. It was all about the show. It was all about the ritual. And yet there's others like the tax collectors, the prostitutes, some of them, uh, who maybe had a rough patch, a rough, rough past. And yet they come to God they don't have it all together. They realize they don't have it all together, and they're like, maybe Jesus can put me back together again. Maybe there's hope for me. And they don't come with this pretense of feeling like, oh, I got it all together. I do, I'm so righteous. I'm so spiritual. They're just like, Jesus, can you help me? Can you fix me? There's a purity of heart there. That's what it looks like to have a purity of heart. It's not about the show. It's not about the performance. It's just about loving God and loving people. And Jesus says there's a reward for that, that the pure in heart will see God. Don't miss the importance of this. You think about the scriptures, and to see God meant to see death. I mean, people don't just see God and live. And yet for the pure in heart, Jesus promises they're going to see God. They're going to see the face of God. So he says, happy are the pure in heart. He goes on and says, happy are the peacemakers. As believers in Jesus, we're called not just to love peace, but to work for peace in all areas of our lives. It's true from a personal standpoint, to strive for peace and reconciliation in all of our relationships. Paul wrote this in Romans 12, 17 to 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we're to be the voice of peace in our lives. We're to be the voice of peace in our workplaces. Rather than giving in to negativity and gossip, we're to encourage peace and reconciliation. We're to be the voice of peace in our churches, to put away gossip and slander, unwholesome talk, and only speak words that build up. We're to be peacemakers in our communities, 
uh, author and professor Robert Gulich, in his book Sermon on the Mount, A Foundation for Understanding, writes of the role of Christ followers as peacemakers. He says, the peace intended is not merely that of political and economic stability, as in the Greco-Roman world, but peace in the Old Testament inclusive sense of wholeness, all that constitutes well-being. The peacemakers, therefore, are not simply those who bring peace between two conflicting parties, but those actively at work in making peace, bringing about wholeness and well-being among the alienated. So as believers, we're to work for peace in our communities. We're to care for the orphan, uphold the cause of the oppressed, the widow, those who are downtrodden. And the, war, the reward for peacemaking, Jesus says, is that we'll be called the sons of God. That is, we'll reflect the character of God. The one who left the throne room of heaven and came down to the earth to make peace with us. Matthew is probably, or Jesus is probably also speaking of the relational closeness of those who are peacemakers. That they have this closeness, this intimacy of God, with God, that they're called the sons and daughters of God. So Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers. Finally, he says, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You think about any school in America, you have people who are ostracized, people who are bullied. And, you know, maybe they're bullied for different reasons. Maybe it's, um, you know, just how they look. Maybe it's how they behave. Maybe it's their race. Who knows there's all different reasons why people might be bullied in schools today. But in every school in America, there's some who are kind of cast out. You might even say persecuted. And you think about those who are bullied in schools, and I think that bullying is so harmful, not only because of kind of what it is, but what it signifies. Uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, bullying is more than just kind of physically being, you know, abused or, or beaten or whatever the case may be. It's more than just negative words being spoke to, spoken to you. Bullying is about making someone feel like they're, they don't fit in. And I think that's why it's so harmful, that's why it hurts so much, is that those who are bullied are, are cast out, that they don't have a people, they don't have anywhere that they fit in, and they're rejected by the community. And I think that's the same kind of feeling that those who are persecuted experience. If we're persecuted, if maybe uh, we have family that just kind of reject us because we're Christians, or maybe we're the only Christian in our workplace, we feel like we're alone. We feel like we're rejected. Um, the writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 11, 35 to 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They didn't fit in. They didn't have a place. And yet Jesus said, for those, says, for those who are persecuted, he says, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For those who are persecuted, there's a kingdom for them. There's a place where we fit in, where we belong. So if we experience persecution for Christ, we feel like we don't fit in, we can take courage that God has a place for us, that we fit in in the family of God, in the kingdom of, of God. 
So there we see the eight keys to happiness that Jesus gives us. And so how do we bring this all together? How, how can we apply this to our lives? Well, I think there's something interesting about this passage. It says that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on a mountain. Now remember another time when someone went up on a mountain. Think back to the book of Exodus. Moses went up to a mountain. He went up to a mountain and received the law of God and then came back down to the people and, and gave them the law. And I think that, that there's a parallel held here that Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's giving, in a sense, a new law, but in a sense it's the same law. And he's saying that happiness kind of looks different than we might expect it to look. And fundamentally, when you sum up everything that Jesus says here, the key to happiness is sincerely loving God and sincerely loving people from a pure heart. Jesus later will say, that's what the law is about. It's about loving God and loving people. And so Jesus explains here, it might not look like you expect it to look. Happiness might look like mourning. Happiness might look like being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But those who believe in Christ, those who love God, sincerely love people, are in a state of happiness, that it will turn out well for them. Happiness isn't always found where we think it will be found. There's a man by the name of Henry Nguyen. He was a priest, great writer, brilliant teacher. He taught at Harvard and Yale, well-respected. And he felt like God was calling him in the last decade of his life to spend time with those who were disadvantaged. And so he spent time in a community with people who were, uh, had emotional, physical, um, psychological uh, disabilities. And there was one individual that was part of his community called Trevor. And uh, Trevor was really dealing with some severe mental issues, so much so uh, that he had to be taken to a psychiatric hospital to be uh, evaluated. And so he was sent to this psychiatric hospital, and in the course of time, Henry Newwood wanted to go visit him. And so he called up the, you know, the people there and said, hey, can I come visit Trevor? They said, sure. Now everybody heard that Henry Newwood was coming to the psychiatric hospital, and everyone was all excited because he was a big deal. You know, and so all of the, all of the workers and you know, the doctors and everyone who was part of that, that community, that psychiatric hospital, wanted to see him. And so they set up this great luncheon for him in a room called the Golden Room. And so he gets there, uh, excited to be there and to see Trevor. But there was a problem. Trevor wasn't there. There was a room full of PhDs and doctors and nurses, but there's no Trevor. And so he asked somebody, and they said, well, patients aren't allowed to go into the, the Golden Room. Patients aren't allowed to eat dinner with staff. We have a policy against it. Now, Henry Nguyen wasn't a confrontational person. He was kind of quiet, kind of kept to himself. But something didn't sit right with him. He felt in his heart of hearts, Trevor has to be here. So he talked to those who were in charge and said, basically, you know, I'm here to see Trevor. And if Trevor is not going to be here, then I'm not going to be here. They couldn't give up a chance to eat eat dinner with Henry Nguyen, and so they went and got Trevor, brought him to the Golden Room. After a few minutes, Trevor got up when nobody was looking and said, a toast, I will now offer a toast. Everybody looked at horror, 
didn't have any idea what he was going to do. Then Trevor, this deeply challenged man in a room full of PhDs, started to sing, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. Nobody was sure what to do. It was incredibly awkward. And yet here was this man with severe psychiatric issues and brokenness, and yet his face was beaming with joy. Thrilled to be there. So slowly, everybody started to join in. First singing quietly, and then louder and louder till they were almost shouting, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. Happiness is found in unexpected places. It's not found in great wealth, great intellectual abilities. It's not found in the places we expect it to be found. Sometimes happiness is found in brokenness. Sometimes happiness is found in mourning. Sometimes happiness is found in hunger, thirst for righteousness. Sometimes it's found in forgiveness, even when we've been harmed. Sometimes it's found in being a peacemaker, caring for those around us who are broken. Sometimes it's found in being persecuted for righteousness, and yet finding ourselves in the community of faith. In short, the key to happiness, again, is sincerely loving God, sincerely loving people from a pure heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the joy that you give us that's not dependent upon our circumstances, that even goes beyond a feeling of happiness, that we can have the assurance that if we're loving you, loving your people, loving the lost, that we're in a good place. That even if it doesn't feel it in the moment, even if it feels like mourning, one day you're going to comfort us. Even if it feels like poverty, one, way, one day we're going to inherit the kingdom. Lord, help us to live our lives in light of your kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. Help us to find our joy in you, in loving you with a pure heart. Lord, help us to be people who are pure in heart, who put aside all pretense, all hypocrisy, that above all, our desire would be to honor you, to know you, that we'd have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that our heart, in our heart of hearts, our greatest desire would be to please you. Help us to be poor in spirit. Help us to recognize that we're desperate for you. Help us to know in all things that we need you. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you're here for us. We thank you that in you is found all joy and all peace. We thank you that you're a good heavenly father who cares about us and loves us and that we can find rest in your loving arms. In Christ's name I pray.